Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, your source for breaking news, business trends, and economic forecasts here and abroad that impact one-third of America's economy. And now your hosts, Lou Weiss and Tim Grady. And welcome to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. I am Tim Grady, and I'm here with my co-host, Lou Weiss, who is president of All Metals and Ford Group. That is the sponsor for Manufacturing Talk Radio. And today we're going to be talking with Michael Pazovitz, who is from Eckert Siemens, Charon, and Malat. And we are going to be talking about liability issues and new rules and concerns in New Jersey. And they're probably going to be uh, relevant across the country as well. So, Lou, it'll be an interesting conversation to see what's happening with manufacturers and issues that are swirling around in the marketplace. Yeah, it's an interesting perspective, uh, taking the uh, manufacturer's liability issue uh, on our show. Uh, I don't think that we've done that before, Uh, and it's certainly something that uh, manufacturers uh, really need to know and understand about. You know, they're busy making things, so they don't necessarily always know uh, that after you make it, how are you protected? Um, and uh, so, I, so I think we're going to leave this up to uh, Michael to explain to us. Michael, join us. Hi, thank you, uh, Tim and Lewis. It's a, a pleasure uh, being on and getting an opportunity to speak to your listeners and subscribers. Um, basically, in New Jersey this year, in, in June this past summer, the New Jersey Supreme Court came down with a big decision that a lot of uh, manufacturers and, and businesses are, are not aware of. And it's, it's not really their fault for one reason. Most people don't like to read legal decisions. <laughs> it's not enjoyable. It's not fun if you don't have to. Um, however, that's my line of work, so it, I, I do find it more enjoyable than the average person. But basically, the big change that happened this year, the New Jersey Supreme Court in the uh, 5-2 decision in the, in the Wheeland matter, and I'll, I'll try to stay away from legalese as much as possible, but basically the New Jersey Supreme Court held that an equipment manufacturer can now be fined liable for damages regarding to component parts for a product that they manu- manufactured, but they never manufactured the component parts that were possibly added on or replaced many years after that product was placed in the market. And that's really a, a big change in the state of New Jersey. And there's also various states across the U.S. that are following this as well. Uh, that's, uh, that's really seemingly unfair. Why wouldn't the component manufacturer of the new part that failed, why wouldn't they be the one that should be liable. I agree with you completely, and specifically as a defense attorney coming from a defense-oriented firm, that, that's our stance. And in all reality, yeah. if, if you're able to identify who that third-party manufacturer is, as a, a defendant, we would implead that third party into the case and say, hey, we're not responsible. It was actually your product. But what happened in the, in the Wayland decision, it was in the asbestos context. And while it doesn't just apply to asbestos litigation, that's how it came about. And you're dealing, in asbestos cases, you're dealing with exposures that happened as far back as the 1950s and 1960s. 
So take a, a pump or a valve manufacturer, for instance. You may have a, a mechanic, an engineer, a machinist mate uh, on a ship working on a particular pump or valve for five years, ten years at a particular building, and they're replacing the packing or the flange gaskets on that valve or pump. Now, I can guarantee you the individual working on that pump knows the manufacturer of that pump because they see the name embossed beautifully on the product every time they go work on it. However, they're now changing or replacing the packing or the flange gasket, which is basically a, a fungible product. There's usually no names or labels on it. Um, the, the engineer or mechanic working on the pump just goes to the storeroom and picks packing off the shelf or a gasket off the shelf. And therefore, no one knows who manufactured that third-party component product that was placed in the product afterwards. So basically, the courts in New Jersey want to make sure someone that's injured by a product, a plaintiff, is able to recoup money. And, and this is basically my, my opinion here, that if, if you don't know who to sue because you don't know who the valve packing manufacturer was or who manufactured the gaskets, how, how do we compensate a plaintiff for their injuries? And again, that, that's my take on the rationale behind it, and it could go into the decision a little bit more, but again, it's making sure that someone is found liable. So when you're dealing with things so, that happened 40 or 50 years ago, that's one thing. And going forward in the future, again, it's a lot easier to identify who that third-party manufacturer would be, and we would, as a defendant, implead them into the case. So would it be wise for manufacturers today, in view of this uh, uh, decision, that they keep records, their own records, of where they bought that little uh, sealer ring so that if and when down the road, 50 years from now, somebody gets sued, it doesn't seem, as I said earlier, it doesn't seem right that the manufacturer is the, uh, or the, or the, the, uh, the company who puts together the machine should be sued for one little part. So would it help if the manufacturer kept uh, very staunch records uh, with serial numbers and so on and so forth so that the third-party vendor could be the one uh, that could be litigated? Yes, um, that, that would be one aspect that's very important. However, the problem you run into is trying to predict the future, right? No one can really do that. So if a manufacturer now knows who manufactured that third-party product and they have all the information, they have the serial numbers, they have a specific model name or number, and 20 years down the road, that third-party manufacturer is no longer a viable defendant. Let's say they went bankrupt or something. So now the courts and the, the plaintiff are going to point back now to the original equipment manufacturer. So what you're saying is accurate and smart. You should keep um, valid records and things like that. But I would go a step further, and I would limit replacement parts to, one, only parts that the original manufacturer provides, or a specific third-party supplier that the manufacturer has a relationship with and maybe some type of control over the replacement parts. And then with the product, the original product and the manuals and the pamphlets, you provide specific warnings and specifications. 
basically to say, if you need to replace this part, you can only order it from us or from this pre-approved vendor. And if you order it from anyone else, you know, we disclaim all warranties and, and so forth. And, and that would really be the best way to protect yourself going yeah. forward. And a, an example I always try to tell people is, uh, you know, a lot of people have smartphones today and iPhones. And when the screen of the phone breaks, most people go to the local store and they have someone that can fix it for maybe 50 or or $100. Now, based on this ruling in Wayland, if there was a problem with that replacement glass on the phone and it causes an injury, Apple could be held liable in the state of New Jersey. But I'm pretty sure Apple, with their pages and pages of terms of agreements that you agree to or you click and agree <laughs> when you get a new phone, I'm pretty sure in there it says you're not allowed to do that. And if you do that, we disclaim any and all warranties. So that's really the more important thing to going forward is to really limit the replacement products to that the original manufacturer manufactured or a pre-approved vendor that the manufacturer has a relationship with. In our uh, forge company, All Metals and Forge, uh, we're making a raw product into a semi-finished product, which needs to be further uh, manufactured, machined, heat treated, or what have you. And it's come back, and not too often. I, I don't think in uh, in 25 years I've had a third-party customer uh, come after us for a part that uh, broke 20 years after we made the raw material. Uh, that said, we are beginning to find that in these terms and conditions, the infamous T and Cs that manufacturers put out to vendors, that they try and hang you before they even buy the goods. Uh, in other words, they want uh, full uh, coverage on a part for five years, ten years, um, and our argument, and we actually have now put it in our uh, counter terms and conditions, and that is that if you change our parts, if you machine it, if you drill a hole in it, if you heat treat it, and in 20 years from now, it breaks. I'm not responsible. You changed the part. Does that have any validity? Yes. Everything... <laughs> Everything has validity, and unfortunately, in the court of law, it gets to be, there's a lot of gray areas and sliding scales. So the worst thing a manufacturer could do is not have any warnings or not have any disclaimers. That would be the worst thing. However, a step above that would be to have specific terms and conditions, absolving yourself of any liability if things are changed. A step above that would be and again, just to take it back to a pump or a valve, because I think that's easier to understand in context, if it's typical for a, a flange gasket to be changed weekly, monthly, quarterly, even yearly, if you have the warning close to that flange gasket, then that's a step even higher and a, a even better, because now the plaintiff can't say, well, I didn't read the terms and conditions. Well, okay, besides reading it, it, there's a warning right there. And another problem right. is also sometimes the person working on the product isn't necessarily the person that you have a contractual agreement with in regards to their terms. You know, if you have a 
you build fireplaces, someone else installs them, and 10 years later, the, the homeowner calls a, a completely unrelated third party and says, can you come and fix this? The person comes to your house and then fixes it. They're not going to read the terms and conditions of the original fireplace when it was installed. They're going to say, I don't need to do that. Here, I, I have this extra product on my truck. Let me fix it. So again, it's terms and conditions or one level of security. If you can get to warnings on the product that are vi visible, that would be another level of protection. So with all the uh, cases that you've done over your uh, uh, career, how many of these types of lawsuits where a third party individual is sued for something that he has nothing to do with, uh, how many of them win versus losses? Well, in my 90% of the litigation I'm involved in is asbestos litigation defense. So all of those cases have to do with exposures that happened anywhere from as early as the 1950s and 1960s, assuming that individual is still living today, up until the early 2000s. And every time we, we represent boiler manufacturers, water heater manufacturers, we didn't manufacture an asbestos product. We did not add asbestos to our product. Many times you would have a, a boiler maker come in or an installer, and again, I'm going back many years into the 50s and 60s, and they actually applied an external insulation to the product, whether it was necessary or not. So that is, uh, I would say, at least 75% of, of the asbestos litigation that we deal with is defendants. And based on the current law in New Jersey, as well as in New York, that's enough for a plaintiff to get their day in court and present their case to a jury. So when you say, how many times do they win or not, in asbestos litigation or, or mass torts, you're dealing with hundreds of millions of dollars uh, potentially in a jury verdict. And so as a defense firm, if we're able to put ourselves or our client in the best position based on under, our understanding of the law, we will get out of the case earlier rather than later before it gets to a jury. And so sometimes clients view settling and I don't want to use the term throwing, but giving some money to the plaintiff is viewed as a win based on the current status of the law in the state of New Jersey. Yeah, I would consider a settlement of uh, some major seven-figure numbers a, a win. Right, and again, I'm talking about settlement figures in, in the tens of thousands where a potential jury verdict is hundreds of thousands of dollars and even millions of dollars. I think J&J um, &J just got hit with punitive damages for well over $100 million uh, a couple months ago, and uh, I believe they're appealing that. I'm sitting here with my, with my mouth open, uh, astonished, Michael, uh, and I realize that this was an asbestos case. And it's not the only uh, thing that you're involved in. There was a Sun decision that that you in uh, that also has some ramifications. Is that correct? Yes. Um, now the Sun decision, in my opinion, is not as as serious and as threatening as the Wheeland decision. However, there are various um, ramifications with that. 
And basically, the Sun decision um, stated that a plaintiff can bring two different types of causes of action in the same suit. Um, so basically, they could bring a cause of action under the New Jersey Product Liability Act, as well as the Consumer Fraud Act. And in the past, the courts had said, you know, it could only be one or the other. And just, uh, again, not to get into too much legalese, the New Jersey Product Liability Act applies to a manufacturing defect a warning defect or a design defect, and the Consumer Fraud Act can relates to advertising, whether it was deceptive, fraudulent, or misleading. So now a plaintiff or a plaintiff's firm doesn't have to choose just the Product Liability Act when bringing a lawsuit or just the Consumer Fraud Act. They could actually plead both in the same complaint, and what that does is allows for more damages to be recovered by the plaintiff. Is uh, is this a law that Jersey passed? Is this uh, in many other states? Is it going to go viral? To, to, you know, helping the, the law industry. Right. Well, um, it, yeah, it, it is scary. In regards to um, responsibility for third-party products, um, I, I did some research on that, and for example. Um, the state of Georgia, the state of North Carolina, and Texas, their current law right now is there is no duty for third-party replacement parts. The Tennessee Court of Appeals said there is a duty. But the problem is, you have to realize, in New Jersey, up until June of this year, there was no duty for third-party replacement parts. So while in one state, if it wasn't the Supreme Court of that state who made the decision, plaintiffs can always bring that cause of action and try to appeal. So it can be changed, um, mm. a, again, as it did in New Jersey. And sadly, when you have manufacturers um, dealing or selling products to various states throughout the United States, I would take the position of worst-case scenario and say, what could happen if this state determines there is liability for third-party replacement part? And... I, half my career I worked in-house as an in-house attorney with um, distribution companies, some manufacturers, and I understand um, offices, business owners, engineers, they don't want to deal with attorneys. The attorneys are seen as the no man or the no woman where, where ideas go to die. But I could tell you, if, if you get a, a, good, a good business-oriented attorney or a good business-oriented law firm behind you, a defense-oriented firm like Eckert Siemens, we can tell you, okay, we understand here's a product you want to make right now. And before you spend three or five or ten years on research and development, only to find out now you may have liabilities that you never thought about or even considered, we can tell you what the law is. We can work with the engineers. We can work with the safety managers and say, okay, we understand this product is important for your business, but here's how you should develop it or here's what you should do just to make sure you don't have liabilities in the future, or if there's potential future liabilities, we put you in the best position to defend yourself and get out of the case sooner rather than later. So I would implore your listeners to actually be more proactive, and when you have a new idea or a new product you're thinking about, bring legal counsel in earlier in the process, because I promise you the fees you pay up front will be a lot less than the fees you pay once litigation arises. <laughs> Michael, I, I'm chuckling because many years ago, I was working with a company who was coming out with a product, and one of the executives in the room said, oh, wait, 
with that, that we could have a problem with that product. There could be a liability issue. And the attorney said, how much do you think we could get sued for? And at that time, he said, oh, it could be $50,000. And the attorney said, okay, build it into the price of the product because this is a great product. Let's go ahead. <laughs> and we right, were yes. all stunned. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, unfortunately, but, I guess that is a cost-benefit analysis that, that can be done. But depending on the potential injury that could be caused, um, there may be some ethical and moral issues involved with that. <laughs> <laughs> is is there presently uh, insurance uh, companies that can provide insurance to protect you, yourself against this new law? Um, so that again, so that it'll, I'm sorry, they'll protect they'll protect you and the uh, third party vendors that are contributing to the park. Um, and there you go, you have it, you're protected. Right. Well, again, doesn't work that way. Yes, many of the clients that we have, we also deal with their insurance companies, and the, their the insurance companies and the client are involved in the litigation game plan and things like that. Unfortunately, with insurance, it's um, it can be everything or it could be nothing. Meaning, you could have insurance that says anytime you're sued for your product, you have coverage. And sometimes there could be a time frame limit on it. Like a lot of our clients have coverage up until lawsuits or injuries that could have occurred up until 1980 or 1986, and then the insurance stops. Um, again, it depends on the specific insurance policy. Um, I always find insurance is important and necessary until you need it, right? And then the insurance company tries to... I guess I shouldn't be saying this because we do represent insurance companies looking for a way to get out of it. But normally, if you have coverage for injuries, <laughs> right, right. But normally, or nine times out of ten, um, and I, I want to be careful not to make absolutes here, but let's say nine times out of ten, if you have insurance for someone injured by your product, the, the insurance is covered for that. The insurance company is not going to say, well, did you put a warning on it as was specified in the Wayland decision in June of 2020? Um, again, you may have some insurance companies that are doing that or possibly moving forward for new products that come to market. But if you're an existing company with existing insurance coverage, I don't really imagine them saying, oh, well, now you're not going to be covered for this based on this new decision that came out. It's it's fascinating. I almost wonder if at some point manufacturers or insurance companies are going to build into their plans or policies, we are not liable under the following legal decisions and start listing those oh. in the addendum. Yeah, yeah, I can see that part of the TNCs. No, I was going to say, it's definitely possible, and I can see that happening, but then I, I put my business hat on, and I think about, you know, now you have a product, you have a company, and you're looking for insurance. And let's say you go to a broker, and they have five to 20 insurance companies to choose from. At some point, you're going to go with a company that provides the better customer service and is not necessarily limiting it where, okay, you're going to pay for insurance, but it will never apply. So I could see some insurance companies possibly doing that down the road. 
but I would hope from a business standpoint, um, they would provide as much insurance as possible for their clients or their customer base. So it's really product well, liability insurance you've got to be aware of at this point. And I'm sure many manufacturers are, but this new wrinkle with the Whelan decision is really kind of astonishing. I well, One of the things that Lou and I have talked with uh, people about on the show are counterfeit products, counterfeit parts, and they're not uncommon. Um, certainly, you know, if a counterfeit part gets into an airliner, causes an engine to blow and an aircraft to crash, uh, that's going to be a messy lawsuit. But it could be as simple yeah. as... Um, uh, a threading machine in a manufacturer. Who knows? Well, take, yeah, uh, you're absolutely right. Pratt, take Pratt & Whitney Aircraft, for example, who builds jet engines for the Boeing uh, 700 series. Uh, if you don't, in maintenance, if you do not use a Pratt & Whitney supplied spare part, that engine liability is null and void. That's that's part of it. When they buy an airplane, you got to buy the spare parts program, where you are not covered. So that's been like that for many, 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 many decades. That is really one of the best Perfect. things a, a manufacturer can do. And also, I don't want it to uh, make it be completely. <laughs> scary for manufacturers and say, why do we do business? Why would we, well, why do we do business in the state of New Jersey? Now, there are various defenses that a manufacturer would have. So basically, if the original product did not contain, um, to use it in the asbestos context, if the original product did not contain an asbestos component part, let's say the gasket was a rubber gasket, and down the road someone used an asbestos gasket, well, now the manufacturer's defense is, look, we never put an asbestos product in our original product. We didn't say you can use an asbestos-containing gasket. We only use rubber gaskets. So, so there are defenses that can be used. But, again, it, it's important to, especially for new companies today developing products, is to get those almost defenses in line early where you, you have your manual, you have your specifications, and basically what I think said Pratt & Whitney does is that you, know, you can only use our products. If you use anyone else's products, our, the warranty is null and void. Now, it doesn't mean you're not going to be sued. Uh, basically, right. people can be sued for anything, but it puts you in the best position or you can get out of the case on a motion for summary judgment, on a motion to dismiss, because you had all your ducks in a row going forward. Right, right. Very, very interesting. Um, and uh, considering there are so many manufacturing companies who have liability issues, and then there are so many lawyers who are looking to jump in on a um, um, you know class action suit, I and mean, you see them all the time at six o'clock news. Uh, they're advertising you could get a piece of a hundred million dollars. So that's, it's, uh, it's scary, and it's the way that the country's going. We're a very litigious country, and um, I, I guess, you know, that's good for the attorneys, right? I'm a defense attorney, so the more plaintiff's counsels become inventive or the more class action suits, you know, the, right. the more work there is for lawyers. But the sad part is, is the hindrance it has on business growth as well as, or even like you're saying, bearing the cost of potential litigation 
in the price of the product you're now selling to the public. And there's always bills being presented uh, that don't necessarily get passed about, you know, preventing class actions or having make setting it the law where the losing party pays the other party's fees, as is done in other countries. We're very um, plaintiff, I don't say plaintiff friendly, but we're very friendly to have um, as a society to give people their day in court. Frankly, Michael, I'm surprised that class action suits still exist. I frequently, I shouldn't say frequently, but I think three times this year I got a postcard that said you are a member of a class in which there is an action against this manufacturer. And if you fill out this little postcard and mail it back in, then you'll be included in the class and could get a settlement. I think my last big win settlement was a dollar and eighty seven cents. <laughs> yes, absolutely. It, it it is sad. That's a sad fact and it's uh, more of a windfall for the attorneys and the members of the class. I, I just saw Apple settled, I think, in the state of New Jersey because there were claims that um, they were slowing down their network anytime a new phone came out. And the argument right. was, well, Apple wanted us to buy new phones. Now, that case wasn't litigated, but Apple settled for, I believe, a couple hundred thousand dollars. And if I fill out the paperwork, you're right, I'll probably get anywhere from 30 cents to $2. <laughs> that may have also been brought by um, a government entity against Apple, so as and opposed to a private cents, law firm. And of the thirty cents that you get, receive, ten percent goes to the lawyer. <laughs> right, right, right. And then you're going up by five dollars. I don't have anything against lawyers. I'm only joking around with you. You guys are <laughs> believe me. I understand. Necessary evil. Yes, yes. Unfortunately, unfortunately, yes. Right, right. Well, that's uh, any other points in particular that you would like to address, uh, Michael? Uh, not really. I, I, I said this earlier, and I just, I, I just want to mention it again, um, especially because based on your customer base and the people that you have listening. Don't be afraid to get defense business-oriented attorneys involved in a process or idea earlier rather than later because it, it will work out to your benefit in, in the long run. Well, then we're going to ask you for your uh, website and email address so our listeners can uh, reach out. Sure, perfectly. I, I appreciate that. Thank you. And what is that? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I thought you were going to ask me to email it to you and you were going to post it. Um, no, again, we, the we firm can do, is. You can do that too. Okay, yeah. I'll, I'll just say Michael Pazovetz from Eckert Siemens. And uh, we're a Pittsburgh based law firm. We have offices up and down the East Coast from Pennsylvania. I'm sorry, from Boston down to Richmond, Virginia. We're a defense oriented firm. We're in many industries. Um, we deal with manufacturers, um, patent holders, anything really from a business standpoint, as well as from the def defending those businesses is what we specialize in. Great, Michael. Well, we appreciate you sharing this conversation with our listeners. It is uh, a curiosity. And as you uh, know from being defense attorneys, defending manufacturers, some of them are well-meant, well-intended, but don't necessarily turn out well 
on future cases when they're used as precedents. Um, but thank you for sharing, particularly in this Whelan decision, because that one is a real odd duck that I'm sure is going to be cited in cases across the country, uh, and it's going to be a messy piece of business to resolve. Absolutely, it is. And I appreciate your time, uh, Lou and Tim. Um, it was a pleasure. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Our, our pleasure. And by the way, I, I'll, I'll extend to you an open uh, invitation that uh, anything of this nature and or any changes as a result of uh, this new uh, piece of litigation, uh, certainly reach out to us. We'd love to have you back. Absolutely. You'll, I was going to say you'll be first on my list of people to contact, but you're probably second after we let our clients know. But absolutely, um, you'll know very <laughs> early right at the beginning. <laughs> All right. Very good. Thank you very Thank much. Thank you very much. And still, okay. listeners, if this is of interest to you, we encourage you to listen at mfgtalkradio.com. And while you're surfing the web, be sure to stop by jacketmediaco.com. And check out our other podcasts. You'll find the WAM podcast, which speaks to women and business and manufacturing. Hazard Girls, which has interviews on women in unusual fields in business and industry. Full-time with Amy Nicholas that talks to that work-life balance for working mothers. Manufacturing Matters with Cliff Waldman, who speaks on the economy and manufacturing and why manufacturing matters. And where's Willie as Willie travels the country to manufacturers and speaks to us from production floors. And as always, thank you for listening to this episode of Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thanks for joining us on Manufacturing Talk Radio. You can hear our next broadcast each Tuesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Standard Time at mfgtalkradio.com. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.